And there was something in the civil rights movement that is very good advice. Keep your eyes on the prize. Mm-hmm. And I think women are better than this because we've had an inferior status in life. Uh, in my workings in business, I see men who are very ego-invested in everything, and that often is a barrier to their success. Mm-hmm. And as a woman, my ego's pretty strong. I'll just turn the other cheek if it means I can get from A to B. Rhoda Maykoff received her PhD in biochemistry in 1961 when she was 23 years old. Our conversation explores how Rhoda developed an interest in science and how she built a successful entrepreneurial career in academic research, teaching, and business, despite the continual roadblocks that she encountered as a woman who envisioned a major career. Rhoda reflects on the principles that have guided her resilience and persistence in achieving her goals, including the importance of keeping your eyes on the prize and developing an egoless style of leadership. I'm Diane McDaniel, and this is Real. Welcome, Rhoda, and thanks so much for coming in to talk with me today. I really appreciate you. Well, thanks. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. So before we begin, I'd like you to introduce yourself and tell us something that's important to know about you. Well, I'm Rhoda Makoff. I live in California. I, I grew up in California, went to UCLA, uh, got my doctorate there. And uh, I'm now 80 years old and feeling very, the lightness of being, really. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I aspire to, uh, to your lightness when I get there. <laughs> so you mentioned that you had gone to UCLA and, and that you'd gotten a PhD. Your undergraduate degree is in zoology, and you earned a PhD in biochemistry in 1961. How did you get interested in science? Well, that's a long story. Uh, I was the first person in my family to go to college. And until I was raising my own children, I didn't realize what a difference that made in terms of growing up. Uh, My parents were post-depression parents, and most of what we talked about was buying a house in a good neighborhood, going to good schools, very practical day-to-day things. Mm. When I got to college, and I'm going to skip back and forth here, a whole new world opened up. People talked about philosophy and Mm. ethics and all sorts of things. So uh, with that in mind, when I was in, I never had a, a background. I didn't even know what chemistry was. And when I was in junior high school, some high school kids came uh, over and did a, an assembly. And in the assembly, it was a chemistry. They were the chemistry club, and mm. they did all sorts of wonderful things. They turned blue liquids into red, and I was absolutely fascinated with it. And then in ninth grade, I read a biography of Madame Curie, mm. and I just, I just thought, wow, this is really an interesting subject. And when I got to college, and I really had no preconceived notions of what I wanted to do. My parents said, go to college, get an education, get a good job. And so that's, there was no pressure to be or do anything. 
And so I took all these different courses and fell in love with chemistry and biology. So I majored in zoology, I minored in chemistry, and then took a degree in biochemistry for my doctorate. Right. So what kind of uh, jobs did your parents hold? My dad ran a children's store. Hmm. I'm Jewish, and a lot of Jewish people, my dad always said, don't work for a corporation, uh, that you won't get promoted because you're Jewish. Always work for yourself. Hmm. And he worked for himself. My mom and my grandmother bought and sold property. Mm. with very little money to work with. It was a time you could get seconds, and they would buy apartment houses and run apartment houses, and that was what they did. I grew up in an escrow office. So you really always had a, a role model, model of women who were, who were working women. Very strong, very uh, liberated. Mm-hmm. My mother always felt that it, the world would have gone better if Eleanor rather than Franklin Roosevelt was president. Right. And she never felt any woman should be held down. I was an only child and I was a daughter, so uh, basically it was do whatever you want. Right. No, that's wonderful to have that uh, supportive environment. And so you you took a lot of different courses at UCLA, and you really gravitated towards the sciences, which you already were sort of interested in before from your experience prior to going to, uh, to college. What was it like to be a young woman studying science at UCLA at that time? Well, all the things that everybody always relates were true there. I mean, uh, you had professors that told you you were too pretty to be in science. You had uh, professors when I tried to get a job. I was married early uh, because we both wanted to study and and not worry about dating. And so a professor said, oh, I can't hire you uh, even though I needed the job because you're going to get pregnant. There was the biology professor who, and I was often the only girl, not in the whole class, but in the smaller lab sections. Mm -hmm. So I was the only girl, and it was a biology class, and he decided, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to hand this girl this snake. Mm. Now, I had like everyone, sort of a fear of snakes. But I'd be darned if I was going to show the guys in those classes that I was going to flinch, and I didn't flinch. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) But it was, you know, sort of par for the course. You're taking up a man's role. Too bad you got the best grade in the class. You're not even applying to medical school. Mm -hmm. It was ongoing. And so how did you deal with that? Uh, discouragement that you were getting or lack of encouragement from, you know, the the people, your professors and the people around you? Well, it gets to be sort of a defining thing. The more people, the male power structure tells you you can't do something, the more I decided to do it. Mm -hmm. And there was something in the civil rights movement that is very good advice. Keep your eyes on the prize. Mm. And I think women are better than this because we've had an inferior status in life. Mm -hmm. Uh, In my workings in business, I see men who are very ego-invested in everything, and that often is a barrier to their success. Mm -hmm. And as a woman, my ego's pretty strong. I'll just turn the other cheek if it means I can get 
from A to B. Mm-hmm. So you don't get too caught up in that. You keep your eyes on the prize, as you exactly. said. Exactly. Right, right. And so did you have other women who were your your colleagues as you were in the larger class, as you were in your undergraduate, or maybe especially in your graduate work? Yeah, we gravitated toward each other. And role models matter. There was one woman biology professor at UCLA in the zoology department, and she was a fabulous lecturer. And it was really because of her, I thought, I can do this. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah. What kind of career did you envision for yourself at the time that you received your PhD? Well, you know, as I said, I was the first person in my family to go to college. And once I got to the university, I loved it. And so I wanted to be a professor. I wanted to do research. I wanted everything that I saw, I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So that was going to be my course. I would uh, hopefully find a university. And at that time, my husband, who was going to medical school, we were going to do research together in endocrinology. And hopefully we would be close enough to that when we started a family, we, we discussed if we wanted a family. Mm -hmm. The woman professor at UCLA never had children. So this was a choice. Madame Curie had her father after her husband died to take care of her children. Mm -hmm. So having children was a major choice when you wanted to have a major career. Right, right. So then after receiving your PhD, you spent a few years as a fellow at Harvard Medical School. What kind of work were you doing at that time? Uh, My main area was hormone mechanism of action, and this was a project that was ongoing, and it was a lab that was really multinational with people from all over the world, a very famous man at Harvard, and I was one of the people doing this research. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And how was the environment there? Was it similar to what you found at UCLA, different? Oh, that's an interesting question. Actually, someone from UCLA, a guy from UCLA, came uh, from my graduate group there, too, so there were two of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a difficult time. It was during the Vietnam War, so a lot of talking in the lab about what was going on on the outside, and we were in this ivory tower. Mm Mm-hmm. There were more duo male-female couples in the Boston area mm-hmm. than probably any place else. So there were other professional women to talk to. But still, I had a small child, eventually two, and no parent support, and a lot of stuff to do at Harvard and to the point of having emergency nannies because the day I would have to give a seminar at Harvard was the day the regular nanny called to say she couldn't show up. So it was, it was, and my husband was a resident and he just wasn't there. Right. So it was a difficult time. Yeah. You were juggling many things at once. Juggling many things. But, but the male-female thing was not as apparent because there were so many. uh, And in fact, the guy I worked for, his wife was also a professor. So that was sort of minimized. Right. So you you talked about having children really being something that you and your husband talked about because you wanted to be um, a a two-career couple. And so how did you 
how did you come to that choice or or how did you sort of negotiate what would happen? <laughs> well, it was funny. Up until the time we had children and we were we were undergraduates when we got married, it was sort of 50-50. Then we got to Boston. I had the research postdoc. He had the medical residency and was never there. So it suddenly was me. Yeah. So it, no negotiations beforehand, as everybody knows, prepares you for what real parenthood is. Right. And we're both only children. And we really enjoyed, it was fun having children in the times we had. And so we ended up having four children, which for someone who wants a full career is not a good choice. (laughs) Right. It does make it hard. (laughs) I mean, the friends I had who had one child, my gosh, not to them, but it's really a piece of cake compared to being the emotional head of a family of four. And I'll give you an example of this. When I got to Harvard, after our work day, the guys in the lab, there were all, just about all guys in the lab, said, let's go to the local bar and talk about the latest in the Journal of Biochemistry. So I'm sitting at this bar talking about the metabolism of fruit flies, and I'm thinking, what am I doing here? I, I need to be home. You know, I've been gone for eight hours. Right. And, of course, then there was my lab partner who, when one of my kids had measles, and as I got off the phone, I was talking to the nanny, not measles, but something, and he looked at me and he said, don't you feel guilty not being there? Mm. I didn't need that. Mm. Yeah. Because I did. Yeah, I'm sure you I'm sure you did. There's always that uh, kind of juggling and sacrifice. Yeah. Um, After Harvard, uh, you returned to Los Angeles. You and your husband had the four children, as you mentioned. How did the two of you manage your careers and and busy life? Well, uh, uh, it was really hard at that period. And he came back to a job. I had been offered a job at Boston College as a professor, the ideal life. Mm -hmm. Uh, The one you wanted. The one I wanted. I could have lived right next to the college, go back and forth, even for lunch if someone was sick, uh, do my research. There wasn't a lot of pressure, all of that. But he wanted to go back to Los Angeles, and I felt a little guilty, too, because all our parents were here, and we are only children, and we had the only grandchildren. And so I thought, okay. And it was push and shove during this period, Not, not the the uh, peak of our marriage. Right. Anyway, but after, after the test settled, I came back to Los Angeles to look for a research job. And even though I specifies that it had to be in Los Angeles, at least I was getting all these uh, job openings all over the West Coast, hmm. wasn't going to work. Right. So at this point, I just started volunteering for LAUSD going into areas that didn't have a lot of extracurricular activities and teaching science and teach and doing sort of fun things with my kids leading to me developing a elementary science curriculum. Okay. So you were working in at LAUSD in at the elementary level at a volunteer. Yeah. yeah. I had only taught medical students before, but teaching is, you know, imparting information in a way kids can get it. And 
many of these kids, uh, just a, a sad aside, I was going into Inglewood the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated, and I had these 20 pairs or 30 pairs of little eyes looking at me, just asking, why did this happen? Mm. And I know that uh, you at some point got interested and involved in in civil rights. And how does all that kind of come together, your work with with young children and your interest in civil rights? How how did those things kind of uh, mesh, I guess? Well, you know, it it occurred to me that uh, uh, we had to do something to excite the kids who didn't get all the stuff that West Side kids were getting stuffed into them after school. And so I came up with several programs. Actually started, we, we spent two years in Philadelphia when my husband was in the Army. And I, since college, had belonged to the NAACP. And that's when I went on the march to Washington. And I worked with one of the pastors there on a program that would get high school students trained for lab technician jobs, get Mm. them interested in science. So everything I've done has always been circumscribed around some aspect of science. And so when I got back to Los Angeles, I joined a grassroots black group in Venice to teach kids science. I got involved in a private school in Watts uh, that was science-oriented. You know, I did a bunch of things that were just sort of interesting and I felt helpful, uh, but not on a sustained basis. Mm-hmm. Right. And so then at some point, your uh, interest in education turned into uh, a job. <laughs> yes. Yes, that was, uh, there is an apocryphal story when Paul Cummins and I met at a cocktail party and it was during the LA school strike, which wasn't about pay for teachers. It was about smaller classrooms. And so what year are we at here? We're at 19, probably 69, 70. Okay. And, but a couple years before that, I had met Paul at the cocktail party and we talked about what could be done in education and the fact that there was no real West Side private high school. Mm -hmm. And then it dropped. And I was doing my piecemeal stuff, looking for research jobs, all kind of like that. And then the strike came, and then almost simultaneously, Paul got offered a job as headmaster of St. Augustine's Parish Episcopal School in Santa Monica. And he said, would you be my assistant head person? And run a science program. I'm going to bring art and music and everything into this school, and then we'll be on the same campus. Maybe we can get the high school going. Mm -hmm. And that's really what happened, because once we were together, we plotted out within six months, not wanting to lose the sixth grade parents who loved what we were doing. And we started the high school, and uh, we picked a board of directors, and we looked around the table and said, who can run the school? Who doesn't have a full-time job? And it was me. <laughs> <laughs> and so that became the Crossroads School. That became the Crossroads School with me as the first director. And I did it for three years. I got us into a campus, which is now the main building of the larger school. 
and I got us on the right direction. I learned a lot. I knew nothing about administration, and it was really a gut-level, common-sense sort of approach. Right. We did some fabulous things. From day one, we decided we were an academic school. We happened to have hit a year when a bunch of private schools started, hmm. and some of them, which did not continue, we're trying to be all things to all people, and we never tried to do that. Mm-hmm. We were in a school that was college prep, but we wanted to bring in music. We wanted to bring in art. We wanted to bring in science. We also brought in community service, which I guess you can say that was sort of a thing for me in terms of giving back to the community. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to bring in the environment and started a backpacking program. Mm-hmm. And at the time we did that, I don't think many, if any, schools had them. Right. On the other hand, uh, now they all have them. Yeah. That was how Crossroads started. You mentioned the backpacking club, and I know that uh, you took that experience into some new realms as well. Would you just tell us a little bit about some of your backpacking adventures? Well, I did not come from a family who ever went out into nature except a park picnic and it one of both of our teachers were avid backpackers they were also carpenters which was good for the school because we had to rebuild the school yeah (laughs) (laughs) and uh so and we all we were so short-handed I drew over the school bus and I went on the at least one of the three backpacking trips when we first started and I loved it and then uh, near the end of my, when I decided not to stay as a school administrator, we climbed Whitney for the first time with a couple students and a, a teacher. And then I immediately formed a goal. I climbed Telegraph Peak, which is the highest peak in Death Valley, which from the top of which you can see the lowest and the highest point of the continental United States, which was sort of cool. And to me, backpacking was sort of an allegory for life. You're going up a hill, you're working hard, you Mm. get to the top, you enjoy, you glide down. Years later, uh, one of my goals uh, on my bucket list was to climb Kilimanjaro, and I did it. Wow, that's amazing. It's not a hard climb. <laughs> it's not, you don't have, I, don't, I, I backpack up and down. I don't hammer in little things, and I don't go where there's lots of snow. Right, right. But it does sound very impressive. <laughs> yes, everybody's carrying a copy of, of Hemingway's The Snows of Kilimanjaro. It's a whole thing of itself. <laughs> Okay, so then after serving as a head of Crossroads for a few years, you went back to UCLA and you were an adjunct assistant professor, is that right? Yes, in the Department of Medicine, and I think I was the first adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Medicine. I had two jobs. One started, uh, I was uh, in the Microbiology Institute, and I was working for the head of the Department of Medicine, uh, or the head of endocrinology on diabetes and I we were looking at I was studying the liver enzymes the biochemistry of the liver enzymes uh, after beta cell transplantation then that grant ran out and I knew that 
everything has sort of modes and trends and what I was doing was not a trend. Things Mm. were getting very exciting with other things. And so I then started, actually I ran the lab for a fellow who had been nominated for the Nobel Prize, brilliant guy who, uh, Neil Bricker, who really was the father of understanding modern kidney disease. Mm. And I ran his lab and was doing some tissue tissue culture work when his grant money ran out and he moved um, to Loma Linda. And that left me with, what do you do next? Mm -hmm. And I loved those jobs. Uh, I always feel jobs have to have one or two of three things. Either the pay has to be fantastic to make hard work worth it, or the title has to be fantastic to soothe your ego. Or the work has to be absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. And the work in both these jobs were fascinating. I once was on a jury, and a girl said, what do you do? And I said, oh, I work on diabetes. I'm a biochemist. And she said, oh, you do something for other people, Mm -hmm. which doesn't strike you when you go in day in, day out, trying to repeat experiments and get get the statistics uh, on what you're doing. (laughs) But nobody, until you publish your paper, nobody's there to pat you on the back. So it's pretty self-directed work, but I loved it. Yeah. And so when you said that uh, that job at UCLA was one of the first uh, jobs of that type, what, what did you mean by that? Is it the adjunct part of it or? Well, you're not, you see, already I was not doing or was where I thought I ought to be because when you're an adjunct, you're never on the tenure track. Right. Yeah, and uh, in this case, you would be primarily research rather than uh teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, the Department of Medicine would have me come in and teach various new things in biochemistry to the MDs, which I liked also. This sure. was so, but in terms of long-term longevity uh, in the job, there were no guarantees. And if your grant money didn't come or your person left, both of which happened, uh, you're at step one again. Right, right, yeah. And so then after about a, a decade of, of doing this kind of work, uh, you founded Makeoff R&D Laboratories. Um, how did that come about? Well, as I said, I was losing my grant, losing my job. My kids by then had gone to college, and this was really the light at the end of the tunnel. Once when I was working at UCLA in the lab and it was Easter vacation, and all four were on a ski trip, and all of a sudden, I didn't have to dash home at three o'clock and start carpooling and taking them places. And I thought, you know, there's gonna be a day when I can be a graduate student again, where you can just work all day and night, and when you get home, you get home. Yeah. And so uh, I saw that coming, and at, almost at the same time, my husband's a kidney, spe- was a kidney specialist, he's retired now, And he mentioned to me, he said, you know, kidney patients have a really special vitamin, need a special vitamin formulation, and almost no companies uh, are putting out, it's too small a a number of people for them to put anything out. Why Mm -hmm. don't you do that? Mm -hmm. And uh, just to show you how funny 
things are. I had been working at the school, and I liked uh, in Watts, and I liked one of the board members really much. She was going to medical school, and she had invited us to a party, and I met her father, and I said, what do you do? And he said, oh, I make vitamins. Mm. And so I looked at him and I said, if I gave you a formula, could you make a vitamin for me? And he said, yes. So I was in business. (laughs) (laughs) Kismet, right? (laughs) So we started, uh, I would give him a vitamin order. And I had this vision. I had sold retail in my father's store. I knew how to sell retail. I was an academic, so I could put out a newsletter and give all the reasons why this was the literature-based vitamin. And I went to one of the world's experts on it, and he uh, said, yeah, this is a good formula, all this stuff. And I envisioned this mail order from my downstairs bedroom. Well, it started to grow. Not fantastically, but it did start to grow. You, you grew out of that downstairs bedroom? We grew out, and there was not one defining moment, but there were several, one of which was, okay, you need to rent a place if this is a serious business. And signing a lease for something when you didn't have a lot of extra money, we had four kids in college and graduate school, was a big deal. Mm -hmm. But I did do that, and through a couple more leases, I got to where we were uh, a little functioning business. But at that point, I was doing everything, and I was bringing in a secretary and ultimately a partner who helped me run it. And then the second defining moment was when I realized to really grow and be a serious company, I had to raise money. Mm. And I certainly think that anyone who goes into business now, now you do it on Kickstarter, and it's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. But I had to go to my friends Mm. and just about anyone we knew, one from every part of our life. And we had it written up, and we gave a presentation, and I managed to raise, I don't know, a hundred, couple hundred thousand dollars, which is just what I needed to get me over a barrier uh, because banks don't loan to women businesses. At mm. least they didn't 30 years ago, 25 years ago. Sure. Uh, and so if you didn't put your own money in or you didn't have friends who would lend you money, and I had all of those. Mm. I was using every possible thing. But once I took investors, I really felt responsible. Mm. And I never made a decision. It was a little bit like having children. I never made a decision without thinking about the children in my life. Well, I never made a business decision without wondering about the impact on the investors. Right. And, And, of course, the patients. The the investment because you were... Uh, you needed to be able to do more manufacturing, or we had it, basically it, it was a virtual company in the sense that I contracted out my manufacturing. Mm-hmm. I had a small sales telephone sales force, and I had some really expensive financial and FDA people to help me go through the hurdles of the FDA. Mm-hmm. What you find is if you contract out things like manufacturing, they need managing too, Mm. just like employees, only they're farther and you have to travel more. Right. 
And so you had a, a telephone uh, sales staff, and who were they selling to? This is the beauty of business, and I learned a lot about business. I had a joke where it shows me doing each step of the business with a business book in my hand. Get, get why reinvent the the wheel? Right. At first, I thought I'd be selling directly to patients, mm -hmm. but almost immediately, various kidney specialists, nephrologists, saw that that's what they wanted to give their patients, mm -hmm. and they started to. It was over the counter, so they started suggesting it. Mm -hmm. And so before I knew it, drug wholesalers were calling me, could they have the vitamin to distribute? And then by grandfathering in what had been done before, we managed to come out with a prescription version, mm -hmm. which was a little bit more expensive. And so our sales really, once it was prescription, and the doctor didn't just suggest it, but prescribed it, that and and I came out with other products. I was looking at everything that kidney patients needed, mm -hmm. and we had a line of foods that were low potassium because they can't they can't have tomato sauce and chocolate sauce. And we I went out to Loma Linda and got the head of research to help me create these things. Mm -hmm. Un unfortunately, the margin in foods are so low. Ultimately, we gave up the foods. And how did you sell those? Every uh, that was mainly mail order. Mm -hmm. Although I got some drug stores. There's a big com uh, health complex in Houston and I think in Austin. And druggists called me and said we'd like to carry your line of foods. And there are other other people who can do it. So and I was putting out a new a newsletter. And we just you know we're doing really good things. Mm -hmm. And then. I don't really believe in luck, but sometimes things just fall in the right direction at the right time. Amgen was coming out with erythropoietin. In fact, I had been asked to write a paper on that. In order for that hormone to work, you needed intravenous iron which had been a very sort of scary product because it could cause uh, people to go into shock and, and sometimes die. And at the very time this Amgen prog product came out, the FDA shut down the only source of intravenous iron that the U.S. had. Mm -hmm. And I had calls from nephrologists, and they said, you have to do something. You're you're specializing in kidney products. This is a nutrient. It falls right in your line. There are products in Europe. Mm -hmm. Go get one. Mm -hmm. And so we did. And we took it through the FDA, and we got it approved. I was a really little company, and the product we licensed, which had start, been started by a little company, which had been acquired by a big company. Mm -hmm. And so my little company was dealing at the time with Roan Palenque Rohr. Mm, right. And the people in the original German company in Cologne, Nottermann, signed the contract. And Roan Palenque Rohr wasn't noticing, and they really didn't want this contract. So I had a lot of fun dealings. They moved all the intravenous stuff to England. I had to deal with factory managers and people who didn't want to make this product for us. But it was all sort of interesting and fun because I was fearless. Yeah. <laughs> 
absolutely. Well, uh, it's rare now, and it was even rarer at the time for a woman to be a, a CEO. And so what were some of your defining experiences at the head of this pharmaceutical company? Well, you know, as I said, we had our vitamins made by these small manufacturers. 99.9, maybe 100% are male and scattered all over from California to Texas to the southern states. I have to tell you that I was the only woman there. They always assumed I was somebody's secretary. I happened to be in the middle of reading Hillary Clinton's book. I mean, there's nothing more I can add to her discussions of male chauvinism. But I can add something regarding her. This was the early 90s, and I'd go to these, these meetings they'd have, and I just don't get it. They'd start a meeting, this was when she was first lady, telling a joke to put her down. Mm. And I sat in the audience there and thought, what has this poor lady ever done to them? Mm. And I think she scared the bejesus out of them. I guess I do, too, sometimes. Right. <laughs> I mean, uh, you can't be a egoless man and deal with a strong woman because mm -hmm. she isn't going to take any of your junk. Right, right. So you've had a, a really interesting and amazing career. What has helped you to be successful and what have you learned from your failures or at times when you weren't successful? Well, you know, there's lots of sayings in business, like it's really easy to be a leader when things are good. Yeah. And the real uh, push comes to shove is when things aren't going well. And you have to persevere. Uh, you have to pick yourself up and with every setback and every mistake, uh, just pick yourself up and keep your eye on the prize. Mm -hmm. And, you you know, I always said it's such a hassle to deal with people that aren't trustful, but that doesn't mean you can't deal with them. You just have to be aware. Mm -hmm. I should say something about my business philosophy. I knew because I had investors at some point I'd sell the business. Mm -hmm. So here were all these people working for me, giving up other potential jobs. And from top to bottom, I always felt that every person who worked for me should be trained in a skill they didn't have so that when they had to find a new job because we moved on, mm -hmm. they could be better uh, situated than they were th when they came. Right. And we spent a lot of time in training and all that. And uh, one set of people I brought in to uh, assess morale and get people excited. Uh, the general feeling was when they uh, talked to the employees was that I led in an egoless way, which mm -hmm. makes me very proud. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was about the prize. And the prize was ultimately when we got this product approved in FDA, uh, I had suitors who wanted to buy me, big companies. Mm -hmm. And uh, I sold, and I got a good return for my investors, and I, previous to knowing I was going to sell, had given a certain percent of the company to the employees, so I was able to share 
everything that we did with the employees. Yeah, yeah. So that was, you know, um, so, you know, you keep your eye on the prize and you work hard. Nothing, nothing, you don't get anything if you don't work hard. Yeah. And I always have to laugh. Sometimes I, I'm a big uh, assessor of businesses now. And one year in the canyon, a coffee place opened. And then I noticed that on Sunday morning at 7, they weren't open. Mm. And, you know, that's not the way you run a new business. Sure. Got to get up. <laughs> you got to get up. You got to be there every minute so that people begin to get in uh, into the groove that you're there. Uh, you can't be a prima donna about it. You gotta. N- nobody gives you anything. You have to hustle. Right, right. If you have to, if you have customers, you have to serve them. Right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So I know at least one of your daughters uh, followed the footsteps of you and your husband into science and medicine. And so in closing, I was wondering what advice you would give to girls and young women who are interested in pursuing this path today. What do they need to know going in that's going to help them to at least have the potential to be successful? Work hard, know your stuff, persevere, be egoless, uh, uh, keep your eye on the prize. if some be like water, go around the barriers. Don't mm. push up against it. You just have to keep going. Yeah. And and I can't think of a better model than Hillary Clinton. As mm-hmm. I say, I just started reading the book, so that's where it's at. And it's going to be a long slog for women not to threaten the egos of men. Right. Well, it sounds like that would be uh, good advice in pretty much any endeavor. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that you're going to do. Uh, that's right. It's no different there. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Rhoda. I really appreciate our conversation. Thanks for coming and talk today. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. That's it for today's episode. Thank you, Rhoda, for speaking with me about how your love for science in research, teaching, and business has guided your entrepreneurial endeavors throughout your career. If you haven't yet, subscribe to Real with Diane McDaniel on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know why you listened and what you like about the Real podcast. Please rate the show and leave a review on iTunes. Follow Real on Twitter at Real the Podcast and reach us at RealThePodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Diane McDaniel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>